The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. All right, well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I think that's my teens that are doing that in the back row. Matthew chapter 5. It's going to be our text for tonight. I have to admit, I got a little bit excited this morning when Bob announced that that there was going to be an ice cream social, because let's be honest, a lot of you guys looked at your bulletins this morning, and you said, well, Pastor Bob is gone, Pastor Rick is gone, Pastor Aaron isn't preaching, we're stuck with the youth guy, I don't really want to come back and hear that, but they are having ice cream, so for all of you guys that are upset that we're not having ice cream tonight, I, I formally apologize. But uh, I'm excited for the text that we're going to be looking at tonight. What we have been doing in Activate, our youth group here, is we have been going through a study in the Sermon on the Mount. In the past about two and a half months, we have been going through eight verses in Matthew chapter 5 known to us as the Beatitudes. And these Beatitudes have had such an impact on my heart and have shown me so many areas where I need to grow that I wanted to share those with you tonight. I want to look at a study that's really taken almost three months in our youth group, and we're going to try to condense it down, break it down to just one sermon tonight. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us through this text tonight, Lord, that you would show us how we can become more like you as you reveal incredible truth to your disciples, to the crowds, and Lord, I pray that you would reveal truth to us tonight. In your name we pray, amen. I have a major problem in my life. It's a problem that I haven't been able to shake for about a year. And the issue that I've been encountering week after week after week is that I cannot remember the password to my Apple ID. Now, for those of you that don't have an iPhone, an Apple ID is how you access anything on an Apple device, how you change, how you download anything on an Apple device. You have to have your password. And for the life of me, I cannot remember what my password is that I set up about a year ago. Now, Fortunately, Apple has accounted for this in their system. They've created a a way that I can retrieve that ID. So I have to get online and I have to type in a little bit of information and they ask you a few questions, a few security questions to prove that you are who you say you are. I say I am Adam Bultel trying to sign in and retrieve my password and Apple says, okay, if you are Adam Bultel, we have a couple questions for you. The first question that they ask is what your birthday is. And I don't know how this happened, but when I created my Apple account, (laughs) somehow, I input the wrong birthday. I don't know how I did it. I don't know what I input, but you have to know your birthday to retrieve the password, and I input the wrong birthday. So I start a guessing game. The problem is, after three rounds of guessing, they kick you off. And so I have to wait another day, and then I come back the next day and continue my guessing game. I get kicked off after three times. I can't figure out what birthday I put in. However, Apple has accounted for that. They have a few more security questions for me to answer to retrieve my password. If you are who you say you are, even though you don't know your birthday, there are a few questions that if you are who you say you are, you should be able to answer. The first question that I have to answer is, what is the first car that you drove? And again, I encounter a problem, and that is, I don't remember the first car that I drove. Now, I have a few options in my head. I know that it was, it was a 1992 Ford Escort or perhaps a 15-passenger van or my dad's car at the time. 
The problem is I don't even remember how I put the information in. If I said it's a Ford Escort, if I said it's a 1992 Ford Escort, if I said it's a 92 Ford Escort, if I said it's a red Escort, I cannot figure out the answer to that question. So Apple has enough proof to conclude that I am not who I say I am. I am not Adam Buell trying to access my account because Adam would know the answer to those questions. In Matthew chapter 5, in these Beatitudes, we see Jesus Christ giving security questions that need to be answered by the believer. We see Jesus walking through what we can understand as characteristics of every believer. And if a believer is who they say they are, then these characteristics will be true of that person. So as we go through these Beatitudes, these are a litmus test, if you will, as Jesus is identifying who is going to enter the kingdom of heaven? That's the question that we ask tonight. Whose is the kingdom of heaven? Who are the people that belong? If we are who we say we are, if I am the believer that I claim to be, then I should fulfill these security questions that Jesus places out for us. Tonight, we're gonna look at whose is the kingdom of heaven. Before we can accurately understand the statements that Christ makes, however, we need to have a little bit of a comprehension on who Jesus was speaking to. All signs in the book of Matthew point towards the fact that Matthew was written to the Jews. Matthew was addressed specifically to the Jewish people. And so we understand that whatever was included in Matthew was included for the purpose of communicating something to the Jewish people. So in order to really... In order to really grasp that, we need to know some things about the Jewish people at that time. The first thing that we need to know about the Jews is that they were in bondage. The Jewish people were in bondage. The Jews were in bondage to Rome. Rome ruled that area at the time. Rome oversaw everyone that was in that area. Rome was the one that made the rules. Rome was the one that enforced strict taxes. Rome was the one that held the Jewish people in bondage. And so we hear of Caesar and we hear of Pilate and those are people that were Jewish rulers at that time. They made the rules, they decided how things worked, and the Jewish people were in bondage to them. Now make no mistake, just like any culture throughout history, the Jews desperately desired to be free from that bondage. They wanted to throw off this Roman bondage. They wanted to be their own nation. They wanted to be their own rulers. Now, The reason that this is so significant is because the Jewish people had a promise. They had a promise that they were clinging to. And that is that in the Old Testament, the prophecies said that a king was coming that a Messiah was coming to them and that that Messiah would bring salvation, that that Messiah would free them from their bondage, that that Messiah would lead them into a kingdom. And so we have a Jewish people who is desperate for this kingdom. They are waiting for this kingdom. They are tired of being in bondage and they are ready to go like, like, a, like a horse that's chomping at the bit. They are ready to charge for that kingdom. And now we have a Messiah who is here and the Jewish people are thinking, this is the time. The kingdom is here. We, he is going to lead us into the kingdom. We are going to be free of our bondage. He's gonna throw off the Roman rule and we will rule with our Messiah And they were holding to that promise. They were waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. The first thing that we need to know about the Jews is that they were in bondage. The second thing that we need to know is that the Jews were misled. The Jews were a misled people. We need to understand that the Jewish people were an incredibly external people. This this really occurred for two reasons. They had a very surface religion for two main reasons. The first one was that their leaders were hypocrites. The Jewish leaders were hypocrites. We hear scripture talk time and time again about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders at that time. They were the people in charge of all things spiritually speaking. The Jewish people would have looked to those Pharisees as their leaders. They would have inherently modeled their religion after their leaders, after those Pharisees, the problem with the Pharisees is that they were declared time and time again to be hypocrites. Jesus said, you are great at following the rules. You are great at doing what the law says. Man, the, the, the Pharisees, they were the moral professionals. They followed that law to a T. The problem is, in Matthew chapter 23, we see that Jesus says, yeah, 
You look really good on the outside. He calls him a whitewashed tomb that looks great on the outside, but on the inside is filled with death. And that is the problem with the Pharisees who were the Jewish leaders at that time. Jewish people were a misled people because their leaders were hypocrites. Another reason that they were a misled people is because they misunderstood the law. The Jewish people misunderstood the law. The Jews thought that they deserved to be in the kingdom that God was establishing. They thought that they inherited their right to go into the kingdom. And we see this play out throughout scripture. Time and time again, we see the Jewish tendency was to think, man, we're Jewish, we're descendants of Abraham, we deserve the kingdom, We're going to go as soon as our Messiah comes. In John chapter 3, we see John the Baptist who, Matthew chapter 3, excuse me, John the Baptist is, is, is talking to the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them a brood of vipers. And then he says, and do not think that you can say, we have Abraham as our father. You see what John's doing there? He is saying, this is not an, you you can't claim as an excuse. You cannot claim as a way out of this accusation that you're a descendant of Abraham. That does not excuse you from from the requirements. That would have been their tendency. The Jewish people came with a sense of imperialism in them that would have led them to think that they deserved the kingdom. But what the Old Testament makes clear is that those who would inherit the kingdom were those who would call out the name of their Messiah. That for them to inherit the kingdom, they would have to declare the name of the Lord. And the Jewish people were not there. See, they wanted a Messiah to come. They wanted salvation from their bondage. They wanted him to lead them into the kingdom. But Jesus says, my agenda is not that, not yet. We know ultimately the Jewish people will inherit that kingdom, but this was not that time. Jesus came preaching repentance. He preached repentance to the Gentiles and he preached repentance to the Jews because they both needed to be saved. They both needed Jesus Christ. So we come upon a Jewish people that is misled. They have a faulty understanding of most of their religion. It is so external. And it's upon this scene that we descend when a Messiah is finally here and they are ready to go. They are ready to take that kingdom, but they have a faulty understanding of why that Messiah came. So tonight, we're gonna look at exactly what Jesus said to the people in that situation. What he said to them was, You have it all backwards about who is going to enter the kingdom. You have it all backwards about why I came. And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount and in these Beatitudes specifically is he flips the Jewish mindset upside down. And it is an unbelievable text. Christ gives eight characteristics of those who will inherit the kingdom. Eight characteristics of those who are going to enter Christ's kingdom. He says, you think you deserve it? You think you know who's going into the kingdom? Let me tell you who's going into my kingdom. Let me define who enters the kingdom of of myself, Christ's kingdom. And so we see Christ giving eight characteristics of those who will enter his kingdom. The first characteristic that Christ gives about those who will enter the kingdom is that they are spiritually poor. They are spiritually poor. If you read in verse three, we see Christ say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the way that Christ chose to kick his sermon off. This is how Christ chose to start this sermon that goes from Matthew chapter five to Matthew chapter seven. And Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's an interesting way to kick off this incredible, incredible sermon. This is the first mark of those that would enter the kingdom. This is the first sign of the true kingdom dwellers. First thing that we need to understand in this first beatitude is that word blessed. Christ uses that word blessed to describe every one of those eight beatitudes, as we call them. Everyone says, blessed are the blank. And so we need to understand, what did Christ mean when he said, blessed are they? This word blessed has a few different facets to us, a couple different angles at it, that really when we, when we pull them all together, give an excellent picture, an incredible picture of those who are true believers. The first angle at this word blessed is actually happiness. 
Happiness throughout the New Testament is used to describe in the same word that's used to describe people that were, that were happy as a result of the situation that they were in. They were blessed. They were happy as a result of the situation that they had been placed in. Quite honestly, we could say here that Jesus Christ is giving a way to true spiritual happiness. Christ is establishing how one can have true spiritual happiness. But there's a little bit more to this word. Another understanding of this word is that blessedness means to be well off, to be spiritually well off or, or spiritually even fortunate. Christ is, is saying well, spiritually well off, spiritually blessed, spiritually fortunate are these people. These are the ones who will enter my kingdom. These are the ones who are well off, spiritually speaking. Really, I think our Bibles do a good job translating this word blessed, that these are the ones who are truly blessed. These are the ones who are truly happy, who truly will enter my kingdom. They are spiritually well off. Now we understand this to mean these are the ones who are saved. These are the ones who are marked as those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that develop as we go through this text, how Christ is drawing the Jewish people and drawing the crowd around him to himself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You need to understand what Christ was saying when he said poor in spirit. This isn't that difficult once we break it down. When Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit are people that are spiritually poor. They are people that have no spiritual value. We can understand this as having nothing to bring to the table, nothing to offer God. Spiritually speaking, we know we are dead. There is none righteous, no, not one. We have nothing to offer, nothing to bring. We are spiritually poor. Even we can understand it as we are, from a spiritual standpoint, bankrupt. We have nothing to bring. We have no inherent value. We have an empty hand, technically and spiritually speaking. However, we understand that that, if that were the only thing that Christ was saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, well, that would be everyone. Everyone is poor in spirit. Nobody has anything to bring to the table. So Christ isn't saying blessed is everyone. Rather, what Christ is identifying here is he is saying blessed are those who know their spiritual value. Blessed are those who have an awareness of who they are spiritually. Blessed are those who know I have nothing to bring to God. It is only by the grace of God. It is only through Christ that I can accomplish anything because I am spiritually poor. I elevate Christ because I know that I am and worthless. Having an accurate view of yourself is essential to enter the kingdom. You must be poor in spirit. This is incredibly important because if someone isn't poor in spirit, then that means that they are puffed up with pride. They are confident in their spiritual state, which has nothing in it. And that confidence is incredibly dangerous in the life of a believer. Now, most of us wouldn't do that blatantly, but it's very easy for us to have kind of an internal, under-the-surface confidence in who we are spiritually. Now, Scripture tells us that there is a time to boast. Scripture tells us that there is a time to be confident, but that confidence is never in me. Rather, that confidence is in Christ. I boast in Christ, as Paul tells us. He is the one that I am confident in. I am never confident in me because I know I brought nothing. I am spiritually poor. I have nothing to offer. This would have been a dagger into the pride of the Pharisees. They, they did righteous works, but they were far from being poor in spirit. They were far from being saved. In chapter 6, Christ is going to look at, the, look at the people around him and say, don't be like the Pharisees who do their actions so that others see them. What Christ is getting at is he's getting at their heart. He's saying, you've done great following this law. The law was never intended to save you. The law was never intended to bring salvation. The law was intended to show a need, a need that can only be fulfilled by Christ. You have nothing to bring to the table. You are poor in spirit. Before we can leave this beatitude, we need to look at the reason that Christ says these people are blessed. Why are they blessed? Why does Christ make this statement? And at the end of this first beatitude, Christ says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a significant statement by Jesus Christ. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reason that the poor in spirit are blessed is because 
They are members of the kingdom of heaven. They are the ones who get to go into heaven. The poor in spirit are the ones who inherit the kingdom. And that is a significant statement. They are the citizens of the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes specifically are all about. Whose is the kingdom of heaven? Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you look at the last Beatitude, Beatitude number 8 in verse 10, he says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There it is again. It's the same phrase. That's the last beatitude right there. So what Christ does is he puts brackets on these beatitudes. In the beginning, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are the ones who inherit the kingdom. And then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The beatitudes are about identifying who enters the kingdom. The first one that enters the kingdom are those who are poor in spirit, but Christ does not stop there. He continues to add to this picture of who inherits the kingdom. The next characteristic we read is in verse four. Verse four says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a furthering of that first characteristic. Christ has already said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now he said, blessed are those who mourn. And we have to ask ourselves, it's a question that just jumps off the page. And that is, why, why are they mourning? How is mourning a virtue? Why is mourning declared as something that is blessed? This is an interesting statement by Jesus Christ. And we find the answer to that when we discover why the people of God are mourning. What causes there for true followers of Jesus Christ to mourn? They're not mourning because of depression. They're not mourning because of trials. The people of God mourn because we just looked at it. They are poor in spirit. People that are following Christ mourn their sin. They mourn their sin. Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn their sin, for they shall be comforted. This is an incredible statement by Jesus Christ as he establishes that a characteristic, a mark of a believer is one who is repentantly mournful. Sorrow, there is sorrow associated with who I am, with how far away I am for God, from the fact that I sin and from the fact that I am displeasing God in my sin. Now catch what Jesus is doing here. All of these beatitudes are so incredibly counterintuitive. We talked about what blessed means. It means like happy, well off. Christ says here, blessed, happy are the mourners. See what he does there? He, he, this is tantamount to saying happy are the sad. Blessed are the mourners. This is completely counterintuitive. As they would have heard that statement, blessed are the mourners, that doesn't make any sense. Christ is flipping their world upside down as he looks at this sensitivity that these people should be having towards their sin. And I can ask myself such a simple question here, and that is, how do I react to my sin? What is my reaction when I sin? Does it phase me? Do I go on unfazed? Does it not bother me? Am I someone who mourns when I sin? Christ says, blessed are those who mourn for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at the reason that he gives there. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. There is so much encouragement in that statement. Christ says, they will be comforted. Now think about this for a second. Christ says, these people mourn and what they are mourning is comforted. What are they mourning? They're mourning their sin. They're mourning their, their poor in spiritness, their state before God, the fact that they can do nothing righteous. They are mourning that. And Christ says, comfort is coming. What does that mean? What Christ is saying is, there is coming a day when the sin that you are mourning, there will no longer be a cause to mourn. The sin that you are dealing with is gone. It's removed. The reason you're mourning disappears. We know that this is talking about heaven, just like that first beatitude. Christ is looking to heaven. Revelation chapter 4 says that every tear is wiped from their eyes, that there is no more sorrow, no more pain. There's no more sin. There's nothing left to mourn. To the believer that's struggling with sin, comfort is coming. There is a day that is coming when that struggle is over. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be comforted. Comfort is coming, but in the meantime, the sin that we do commit, we mourn. We're sorry over our sin. First characteristic, 
of those that will enter Christ's kingdom is that they are spiritually poor. The second characteristic is that they are repentantly mournful. They are repentantly mournful. This brings us to our third characteristic tonight. Jesus continues to a mark of those that will enter the kingdom in verse five. He says in verse five, you can read along, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Once again, we encounter a really interesting statement by our Lord. I'm trying to think, too, if I were creating this list, if I were creating these Beatitudes and saying, okay, what are the marks of believers? What are the characteristics of of true believers? Gentleness probably wouldn't be too high on my list. But Christ puts it at number three. As Christ is going through this, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the gentle. What an interesting statement by our Lord. And this is an incredibly applicable word to us. Why does Christ choose to use the characteristic of gentleness to describe a true believer? Some of your Bibles may use the word meekness. This is a, a packed word that, that we may need to separate a little bit from our from our modern understanding of this word. Gentleness has no aspect in which it means being soft, being a pushover, being someone that's not willing to stand for what's right. Now, in our, in our modern mind, we may associate gentleness with that. Someone that doesn't want to offend, someone that is just willing to stand and let everything blow by them, that is not present in gentleness in this text. Rather, what Christ is saying is that gentleness is literally the manifestation of those first two Beatitudes. Christ has said, blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are those who mourn their sin. When you are poor in spirit, when you are mourning your sin, when you have a proper view of yourself, what comes out is gentleness in how you view and how you deal with others. One author said it so beautifully when they said that when when your pride, your spiritual pride is reduced to ashes and laying on the ground, gentleness is the flower that rises up from those ashes. When your pride is dead, gentleness is what comes out of that. Gentleness is how I interact with those around me as a result of the fact that I look at myself with no inherent value. I look at myself with someone that is poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer. So as I deal with you, I don't have anything to defend here. I don't, have, I don't need to be the aggressor. I don't need to assert my will onto anyone else. Rather, all I assert is Christ. And I can deal with you gently. Man, when someone lashes out at me, I don't have to fight back. When someone pushes at me, I don't have to push back. When someone insults me, I don't have to insult back. Rather, I can deal gently with them. I can deal with them understanding who I am and that I deserve nothing. I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon this week that was so succinct of being humbly gentle. He said, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you are. Isn't that a great statement? Such a picture of gentleness. Man, when someone comes at you and says, you are a fool, my reaction is like, you don't know the half of it. Let me tell you how bad I am. I don't have anything to defend here. There's nothing for me to stand on. All I stand on is Christ, and I deal with everyone else gently because I'm not concerned about promoting my own agenda. I am poor in spirit. I am to be mourning my sin and I am to be gentle. Look at the reason that the gentle are blessed. Blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. That is so counterintuitive. What does our culture tell us? Our culture tells us you gotta be dominant. You gotta go get what's yours. You have to scratch and claw and fight your way to the top if you want to, let's just put it in there, to inherit the earth. You gotta go get it. And what Christ says, not the ones in my kingdom. The ones who enter my kingdom, the ones who inherit the earth, they're the gentle. They're the meek. Those are the ones who enter my kingdom. Those who enter the kingdom are spiritually poor. They are repentantly mournful. They are humbly gentle. And in verse six, we see the fourth characteristic of those who enter the kingdom. Verse six says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There's no desire more familiar to man than hunger and thirst. We all experience that. We all know what that feels like. And the reality is that when I'm hungry, I look for something to go eat. When I'm thirsty, I do whatever I can to get fluid into my body. Christ speaks to that common need here when he says, blessed 
are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What Christ is getting at here is he is asking, what is your desire? What are you aiming for? Man, I, when I'm hungry, I desire food. Hunger is just that. It's a desire and a need for food. Thirst is a desire and a need for water. So when Christ says this, he's, what are you aiming for? What is your desire? Towards what do you direct your life? Christ says that the mark of those who enter my kingdom are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We need to ask ourselves, what do I hunger for? What are the things that I desire? Where am I aiming? Our desire is to be for righteousness. Christ says we are to desire righteousness. And if we do that, we are blessed. Now, when we look at the world, this is, this is really interesting what Christ does here. When we look at the world, they get that statement completely backwards. Christ says the ones who are blessed are those who set their desire on righteousness. The ones who are blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you do that, if you set your desire, your aim for righteousness, then you are blessed. It's a state of being on those who are aiming for righteousness. But when we look at the world, they get that backwards. We aim for righteousness and we are blessed as a result of that, but the world aims for blessedness. The world aims for happiness, right? The world is aiming to be well off, to be fortunate. That's their target. That's their goal. So all their time, all their attention is given to, to trying to hit this target of blessedness, of, of happiness, of being well off. And what Christ says is blessedness isn't the target. Blessedness is not what you aim for. Blessedness is the state of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you aim for blessedness, you're not going to hit it. When the world aims to be satisfied, they're not going to hit it. When they thirst and hunger to be happy, they're going to miss. The only state of true spiritual happiness is found, Christ says, when you enter the kingdom, when you are characterized by that, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Once again, Christ gives a reason that these people are blessed. He says, for they shall be filled. They will be filled. We see a similar promise here that we saw earlier. Once again, we, 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 we see a reason. And, and Christ is saying the desire that he just talked about, that desire is going to be satisfied. The desire for righteousness, the hunger and thirst for righteousness, eventually, it's going to be filled. Eventually, that desire is satisfied. What Christ is saying, again, this is, he is pointing to heaven. He is pointing to the kingdom. And he is saying, eventually, the time will come when you will not long to be made righteous. Now, we know that we've been declared righteous by God. However, you and I know that as we go through our day, as we go through our lives, we still struggle with striving to be righteous. Christ says, blessed are the right, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because the day is coming when that desire is satisfied. The day is coming when you are not only declared righteous, you you are made fully righteous to never sin again. I can't, cannot wait for that day. Christ says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So far, we've seen four radical statements by Jesus defining who will enter his kingdom. In the next verse, we look in verse seven and Christ continues to define this picture, continues to paint the picture of the true kingdom dwellers. He says, blessed, in verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. The next characteristic that we see is that those who enter the kingdom are selflessly merciful. They are selflessly merciful. You and I show mercy by extending compassion towards someone and doing something to, to at least attempt to relieve their need. That's what, that's what mercy is. You, you feel pity towards someone and you do something to relieve their state of need. Now, mercy doesn't only take place in, in orphanages or in homeless shelters. Mercy takes place for us on a daily basis. There are people in your workplace that need your mercy. There are people in your schools that need your mercy. Mercy is required of the believer 
all the time. He is to be selflessly merciful. Now, we, need, we can't misunderstand mercy. This doesn't mean that you don't discipline your children. It doesn't mean that you don't ever enforce rules or commandments or, or laws. There, there is a need. In fact, discipline is a form of mercy. True discipline, true loving discipline is a form of mercy upon someone's life. Christ, again, is not saying mercy is a sense of being pushed over or not standing for anything, but rather that you see people in their need and you seek to relieve them of that need. Christ says, blessed are the merciful. The reason this would have struck so deep to that people is because Christ was speaking to a group of people that was incredibly self-righteous. And Christ knew that self-righteousness tends to strip someone of mercy. And you look at the Pharisees, they weren't exactly a merciful bunch. They were a group of people that they hated before they loved. They desired death before forgiveness. They were not merciful. Rather, they they, they were filled with this external sense of self-righteousness, of I'm better than anyone else around me. And Christ said that they were inwardly dead. They, They lacked mercy. They didn't have any mercy. But Christ says, the ones who enter my kingdom, they're merciful. The reason that Christ gives for these people being blessed is is really interesting. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, this is a statement that would be pretty easy to misunderstand as we look at this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It would be really easy to take this as an if-then statement, Blessed are the merciful, for they're going to receive mercy. In other words, if you're merciful, then God will be merciful to you. You have to be merciful if you want God to be merciful. Those who aren't merciful will not receive God's mercy. This is not an if-then statement. Only if you are merciful will you receive mercy. And yet, what we see Christ saying is that there will be no unmerciful person in the kingdom. Now, What's happening here is Christ is not saying you have to earn your way to God's mercy. He's not saying you have to mercy your way to mercy. You have to be so merciful that then God is merciful towards you. That's not what he's getting at here. He's saying that mercy is a mark of the believer. Mercy characterizes those who are going to enter the kingdom. And those who are going to enter the kingdom will receive the mercy of God. Not because of anything they did. Only because of Christ do they receive mercy. But as one who is marked by mercy, they will receive the mercy of God. We can confidently look at this verse and say, according to this, there will be none who are unmerciful in the kingdom of God, for mercy defines those who enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Christ moves on. Not only are these people poor in spirit, not only do they mourn their sin, not only are they gentle and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not only are they merciful, but verse 8 tells us that these people are internally pure. These people are internally pure. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, Christ highlights here by far the most difficult statement that he has made yet when he demands purity in heart. We need to understand the terms that Christ is getting at here because these are essential to our understanding of what Christ is doing in the Beatitudes. Christ uses that word heart. That word heart really envelops everything that we are. It's our mind, our will, our desire, even even our soul in some senses is wrapped up in that word heart. Much like you and I would use the word heart today, if I were to be stating extreme love for my wife, what I would say is I love you with all of my heart. Some of my heart wouldn't be good enough. Part of my heart wouldn't be good enough. God wants all of our heart, all of our, that's, that's all of who I am. I love you with all of who I am. All of my being is devoted to loving you. That's what the heart is. Christ used that almost in the exact same sense that you and I do today. And then he says, blessed are those whose hearts, whose, whose, what makes them up, all of who they are, their, their spirit, their soul, their mind, their will, their desires, they're pure. That word purity is a really interesting word. It, it has a connotation of nothing being mixed in with it. That word pure, it, it has to do with 
tainting something or mixing a foreign substance into something. So if I were to have a bottle of water and I said, uh, let me give you a bottle of water, it's, a, it's purified water, it's pure water, then what you can assume is that there is nothing in that bottle than water. It's just water. There's nothing mixed in with it. It's pure water. But then if I were to take a drop of engine oil and put it into that bottle of water and I said, here's, here's some water, it's, it's kind of pure. That wouldn't fly because kind of pure water is impure water. When you add something to water, it becomes impure. So what Christ is saying here is that you are to have a heart with nothing else mixed in. You are to have a heart that is fully devoted to one thing. there's, There's no sin mixed in with your heart. Now, this is a significant statement by Jesus Christ. Blessed are those whose hearts don't have anything mixed into them, whose hearts don't have any sin mixed in. They are pure in heart. Now, this raises a problem. Christ has said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Those who know they're they're spiritually, they have nothing to offer. Those who know they're sinners. Those who know they are impure people. Blessed are those who mourn their impurity. They mourn their sin. They mourn their position before God. And now we get here and Christ says, blessed are those who are pure in heart. See the contradiction that would have taken place in their minds there? Christ has said, blessed are those who know they have sin. Blessed are those who are aware that they're not perfect. Blessed are those who have no sin in their heart. Blessed are those who are perfect. Now the natural reaction to that is to say, Christ isn't really demanding perfection, is he? Christ isn't really telling them you have to be perfect in heart right after he told them that that they needed to know that they were far from God. Jump down to verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. In verse 20, Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Christ demands that they have to be better at at righteousness than the Pharisees. If that's not convincing, jump down more. Look at verse 48. Verse 48 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The standard is unmistakable. Christ is establishing, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be perfect. You must have nothing mixed in with your heart. You must have nothing tainting who you are. The standard is perfection, and Christ is gonna spend a long time telling them how their hearts are not pure. Their hearts are not perfect. Their hearts are far from God. And so, this is the ultimate dilemma. The purpose of the Beatitudes is wrapped up in this. And what we see is, you have to be poor in spirit, you have to be pure in heart, and those things don't match up. How do I be poor in spirit, poor in spirit, know my problem, know my sin, and be pure in heart? The only way I can know my sin and the only way I cannot have sin is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you can accomplish being poor in spirit, knowing that you have sin, and accomplish being pure in heart. It can only happen through Jesus. And so what we have here is that Jesus is creating a problem. He's creating a dilemma, a a hole that needs to be filled. And what he is doing is he is drawing the Jewish people to himself. He is bringing them to a need for a savior that is only fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When Christ says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He's saying, you wanna see God? There's only one way. Your heart is pure. It's not mixed with anything. It's not tainted. It's wholly devoted to serving God. It's wholly devoted to loving God. It's a high standard. Creates a problem in our lives. A problem that can only be satisfied through Jesus Christ. But Christ isn't done yet. He keeps going. In verse 9, Read along in verse 9. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The seventh characteristic tonight is that those who will enter the kingdom are, re- are relationally peaceful. They are relationally peaceful. 
This is a theme that that carries on throughout Scripture. God desires that his followers, a mark of a believer, is that they are peacemakers, as he says in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, this is a tough word that we need to understand. I go to seminary for things like this, right? Here we go. What's a peacemaker? A peacemaker is someone who makes peace. That's what that is. I know that's deep. A peacemaker is someone that makes peace. What Christ is saying here is, blessed are those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who, as they go through their life, as they're interacting with other people, they make peace with those around them. This is a relational peace. Now, we understand that there's, there's times when you can't avoid conflict. Jesus had conflict. Jesus was aggressive at times. But as Romans tells us, we are, if at all possible, to do whatever we can to be at peace with all men as far as it as far as it relies on me, I'm to do whatever I can to be at peace with everyone around me. The sign of a believer that Jesus brings up next is that they are a peacemaker, a peacemaker. You can only make peace with someone when you selflessly deny yourself, when you, when you say no to yourself, when you deny your desires, when you stop seeking to elevate yourself amongst others, can you make peace with other people? And Christ says that making peace defines those who will enter the kingdom. The reason? They will be called sons of God. Literally a sense of they will take on characteristics of God. They will be looking like God. They will be called children, sons of God. Christ moves on to his final beatitude in verse 10. This one's difficult. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This last beatitude is a, this is a hard one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, this last beatitude is so difficult that for the first time in all the beatitudes, Christ doesn't stop with that one statement. If you look at verses 11 and 12, Christ restates, redefines, re-explains what he just said because this one is incredibly difficult to grasp. Christ said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he explains it more. Look at verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The last beatitude that we have today, the last mark of those who will enter the kingdom is that they are joyfully persecuted. They are joyfully persecuted. And again, this is, this is a difficult one. This would have been incredibly hard for the Jews and the crowd around him to hear, which is why Jesus explains it more in verse 11 and 12. If you are defined by all the things we've looked at so far, those, those seven beatitudes that we've looked at so far, make no mistake, Christ makes it clear, you will be persecuted. Now, it's interesting to see in verses 11 and 12 how he kind of redefines what that persecution is. He says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What we learn from that is that persecution, it's not just physical torment. It can be verbal. It can be physical, even if it's not necessarily abuse. Man, if you are emulating all these characteristics of those who will enter the kingdom, people are going to insult you. People are going to, they will shun you. They will avoid you. They will say false things against you. That is part of what it means. That's that's part of the territory of being a believer. If If you live these things out, even if you're gentle, even if you're a peacemaker, people will persecute you. It happened to Jesus. It happened to the apostles. It happened to the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11 as it looks through all history. At the end of verse 12, it says, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Godly men and women have always been persecuted. This has always taken place. If you live the way that Christ says, those who enter the kingdom should live, the last characteristic is that you're going to be persecuted. This is a, this is a tough one. Am I persecuted? Do people insult me? Do they persecute me? Do they falsely say evil against me because of Christ in me? The characteristic 
of those who will enter the kingdom. Christ says, blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Characteristics that Christ has established are such an appropriate evaluation point for us in our lives. These aren't things that you have to do to get into heaven. You cannot work your way in. You get in because you are blessed, because God has declared you righteous. But for those who are entering the kingdom, these eight things will be true. These are the signs, the characteristics of those entering the kingdom. These people, they couldn't wait to get into that kingdom. They couldn't wait for their salvation from the bondage of the people over them. And Christ said, I'm not here for that kind of salvation, not yet. I'm here for the salvation of your souls. And Christ walks them through what someone who is saved, what someone whose soul has been given salvation, what that person looks like. Does this define me? Do, Do I look like these beatitudes that Christ has laid out? What greater scene than for the Savior to look at you and say, this is someone who is truly blessed. This is someone that belongs in my kingdom. We need to be men and women who are truly happy, truly well off, truly blessed. Men and women that are aware of our spiritual need, that mourn our sin, that are meek, that are gentle, that hunger and thirst for righteousness, that are merciful impure, peaceful, persecuted. But note this, that can only happen through Jesus Christ. We can only accomplish this list through Jesus. It's only him and me. I have no power because I'm poor in spirit. It's only through him that I can be pure in heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this list is continually convicting to me, Lord, I pray you would help us to evaluate ourselves, to accurately look at ourselves as we look at this list of those that will enter the kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would be defined by what you laid out in Matthew chapter five, Lord. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to gather tonight. Bless the rest of our evening, Lord. Give us a safe trip home in the rain. I pray that we glorify you in all that's said and done tonight. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.